Hey, welcome to the Relentless Positivity Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Martin. You got a very interesting guest here. My friend Karen is with us today. So she is a native of Minnesota. Uh, she's been trying to become a Southerner as she goes. She moved to, down south to Albany, Georgia in 1995. So she's working on it. Uh, she eventually got to Huntsville here in Huntsville in 1996, was doing a TV reporting job, Way TV over there. Uh, from there, she went into the non nonprofit space, kind of found a niche there. She worked at the YMCA and mark director of marketing, and then she took on some fundraising duties. Uh, 20 years later, she's still in the nonprofit, so she's she's dominating the nonprofit. So uh, <laughs> on, the, on the personal side, her and her husband, David, have two amazing girls, Serena, who is 17, Sophia is 15. Uh, she likes to write. She likes to walk. She's an excellent walker. I see her walking a lot. Uh, she, uh, passion is of recovery. We'll get into that later. And then also the outdoors. And she, current day, she's the director of development for Wellstone, Inc., North Alabama's largest and most comprehensive mental health care provider. And we're going to get into that for sure. So, Karen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Nothing uh, like relentless positivity on a beautiful fall day. Absolutely. And if you're watching the video right now, we've got the same headset on. So, you know, this we is about do. to be a fire podcast right here. You know, I wonder if there's going to be a who wore it better Oh man, you already won. Don't worry about Maybe. that. <laughs> yeah, you already won. All right. So Maybe let's that's gonna... an event magazine or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can see it happen, man. We're both looking pretty sharp over here. We are. We are dang sharp for sure. All right, so, so you grew up in, in Minnesota. What part of Minnesota are you from? So I was from South Minneapolis, grew up in South Minneapolis. Um, you know, a really very much a working class neighborhood, um, very diverse neighborhood. Um, I loved my neighborhood. I was very close to um, Minnehaha Creek. You know, you've heard of the 10,000 lakes. So yeah. uh, Minnehaha Creek collects or connects miles and miles and miles of trails and lakes all together. And I spent so many, so many days um, walking to and around the lakes in my community. Cool. What, what Minneapolis kind of is just a great city except for the whole winter thing that yeah, that's, really yeah, you know that's, that's pretty rough so uh, what kind of kid were you growing up what were you into oh gal I, I tried everything but um you know I was just writing I'm taking a memoir writing class it's a, an online class but um the first assignment was to talk about a big shift in life when you did something um that was going to change your life and I talked about the moment when we had the big old U-Haul pack David and I were engaged and it was sitting there on Columbus Avenue um outside our little blue um our little blue house and um and all of a sudden the the memories came flooding back and I spent a lot of times with um the girl next door um doing cartwheels and, you know, front handsprings and doing all the things on the front lawn. Um, during the winter, I was not a fan of winter, but I played in the snow. I just, I loved being outside. I also loved watching TV. You know, we had three channels back then and oh, PBS, yeah. which back then didn't really count as a channel because it was like Nova or something on it. <laughs> um, and, you know, there were times when my mom would be like, you've watched too much TV and, you know, she'd send us outside. But um, yeah, so I was I was a happy kid. Most of the time I was um, I was adventurous. I just I just and I loved animals. I, I took my dogs on walks. I, I just loved being around the animals. Well, that's awesome. That sounds like a cool class. I'm going to have to check that out. So uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here is you, you're vocal about your struggle with alcohol. So um, when, when was the first time that you had your first drink? How did you take your first drink? Um, so 
I was in, gosh, seventh or eighth grade, my friend, the one I did cartwheels with, um, who was a year older and um, as my mom would think was a bad influence on me, but I was, you know, I was the innocent one and I had, you know, I could, I could play or play everyone. I could, um, you know, addicts, alcoholics, we can be manipulative and um, we know how to play the game even when we're, you know, in seventh grade, but um she had um, some little little bottles and she went and got her um, collected peppermint schnapps and things like that from her dad's liquor cabinet. My mom was a nurse, a psych nurse in a locked unit in downtown Minneapolis, and she was at work and I knew my dad would be down. Part of my story is that my dad was an alcoholic. And so I knew that he wouldn't really be paying attention to us. So we were in my room. We drank the peppermint schnapps. Um, I remember it feeling funny and feeling different. And um, and I kind of liked it. Um, I, I, I liked the, um, <laughs> there was a sense of freedom, which is ironic because when you're addicted, the, your freedoms are gone. Right. Um, but then we went outside, it was winter. Um, we egged a couple cars, which is awful. We egged a bar. Um, it was just silly, silly things. So, um, so that was the first time. And then the next time I drank, it was on a date for homecoming and I was in 10th grade. So I was 15 years old and, um, and we went to a fancy French restaurant. We were both 15. He picked me up in the family van, even in Minnesota, you don't get a license till you're 16, but you know, <laughs> he was driving. Um, and I was very uncomfortable. I, I was not good at, um, at one-on-ones, you know, I like to keep everyone at bay. Um, I was, I was a great conversationalist as long as we kept it up here. I didn't right. want to go below the surface. I just, um, you know, it was all very superficial, but then he was, um, clearly there was an interest there that I didn't share and that made me uncomfortable. And so, um, he had brought in a bottle of wine, and every time he said something like, oh, maybe we can come here for prom. It was October. And I'm thinking prom, what, you know, and I'm taking a swig. Um, he ordered another bottle of wine and they brought it, which kind of blows my mind because obviously <laughs> yeah. we're not of age. We're dressed for a high school dance. Um, and the really awful thing is by the end of the meal, I had some strawberries and, um, and whipped cream, which would have normally been wonderful. And I drank so much that I threw up at the table in this fancy oh. French restaurant, wow. um, in my strawberries and cream. Hmm. And the server came over and said, miss, would you like a restroom? And I'm like, no, no, I'm good. Because we always have to just you know, everything's great. Everything's always great. Um, and then I said, sir, where was that restroom again? So, um, that would be the night that I had my first blackout. Um, and I don't, you know, my mom's gone now, but I, I can't ask her, but I don't think she realized when I came home that night that I was hammered. I don't know if maybe she was tired or sleepy or she just didn't want to see it. Right. Yeah. So was that it for a while? Or did you say, I'm going to quit drinking? I mean, this is not for me. What was the thought after that night? I think the thought was I had very overprotective parents, particularly my mother. They always knew where I was, what I was doing. Um, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. There was a lot of control there. Um, so there just was an opportunity. Um, 
But I always had that thing when I go off to college, it's going to be great because I'm going to be able to party. You know, that became my main vision for college was to party, which to me really just meant to drink. Yeah. You know, you call it partying and it sounds better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I knew a lot of kids in college that were very straight laced. Parents are very strict. And when they got to college, all bets were off. It was exactly that. All bets were off. I was out from under the thumb. I was out from under the helicopter. You know, sometimes I think my mom was the, um, you know, they saw her and was like helicopter mom. And that's where the term came from. Um, You know, always hovering, always hovering. And I tend to do that with my children sometimes. And I just try and pull myself back. But um, yeah, so, so, but right when I started college, it was, it was, you know, off to the races. I, I drank hard. I, I blacked out. I, I behaved poorly. Um, I did things, said things that, that my sober self never would have even considered saying or doing. Um, and then, and then it's this awful cycle. And here I was a freshman in college feeling shame, just these huge, enormous layers of shame. Um, and, and then I would say, I'm not going to drink again because I would yeah. sit there. My my sweet roommate Michelle, she would she would study. She was putting herself through school, so she was working, and she was going to be a nurse. And she was, um, she was pretty emotionally healthy uh, compared to me. Um, and so she'd sit there, and I'd be, you know, the next morning I'd be just sick as a dog, and I'm never going to do this again. The next day, sometimes the next night, it'd be like, oh oh, you're going out. Oh, you know, and, and it just continued. Um, I did call an 800 number sophomore year um, to find out. I was like, well, maybe I'm a problem drinker, you know, so early I knew, you know, growing up with an alcoholic father who, who amazing father, amazing man, amazing human being, but he never found relief from his disease. Um, And I called the 800 number and I asked, you know, I, I wanted someone to fix me. And they told me I had to go to meetings. And here I was in rural Minnesota. And there was no, um, there was no campus recovery program as many, many colleges and universities have now. Um, and I was like, I don't want to go to meetings. And I probably um, got a little agitated. You know, I was under the influence at the time. And um, so that was, that was it. I it would be years before I, I sought help again. Yeah. So what, what kind of student were you? Did it affect your grades at all? Could people tell from the outside? So I also had, and this was from, um, you know, a lot of people thought I was just, you know, a big partier because that's yeah. what a lot of kids do in, in college. But um, I think um, as far as being a student, I would have done a lot better. I think what really hurt me more than anything was my ADHD with non-hyperactivity and anxiety. So those were um, diagnoses I found later in life, but I always knew something was wrong with me. I would be in geometry class in high school and I'd drift out the window, think about this, that, or the other come to. um, And it was really like I had been in another on another planet and I was coming to and I'd get the assignment um, and I'd have no idea what to do because I missed the entire lesson Um, and so I was an English major so those subjects were easier for me to follow because 
if you have an interest in something, you can better follow along right. than, you know, um, and back then it was like my mom would say, oh, you don't need to know science and math. I mean, can you imagine someone saying that in Huntsville, Alabama right now <laughs> to, a, to a young girl? I mean, they would yeah. just, um, you know, because now we're STEM, STEM, STEAM, STEAM, um, girls, girls, you know, we can do it. But that was not my strength. And my mom just kind of brushed, brushed it off. Um, so I did okay. But I did wind up going um, maybe 10 years ago back to back to my school, the College of St. Benedict slash St. John's University in central Minnesota, and basically making an amends to my education. Cool. Well, that's very nice. So when you got out of college, you got your degree. Where did you start working right out of college? Oh, I was a lost little puppy. I was a drifter. <laughs> I always wanted to be in TV news. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted. Um, but I didn't go to the right school for it. Um, we didn't have a TV broadcasting or TV journalism program. I went to the sister my or the school my sister went to because that was familiar. It felt safe, um, and I enjoyed the campus. I enjoyed the bar, um, sales. It was on Main Street. Um, and let's see. Um, so I did what my sister did right out of college. Um, of course, she had since moved on to New York, and she was making her way, um, just forging ahead in a PR career. Um, amazing, amazing. I admire my sister so, so much. Um, and so I worked at Ann Taylor for a year, building my career wardrobe, very important. Um, and then I got a job. I mean, I just got jobs. I I didn't get things that really resonated with me that spoke to my heart that gave me purpose. I worked for a long distance phone company. And then, um, then I just decided I needed to, if I were, if I were to chase my dream, I needed to take action. So there was a CBS O&O in downtown Minneapolis called WCCO. And I got a job there as a dispatcher. So I sat in a room that was, gosh, maybe six by three. And it had all these scanners. And my first shift was midnight to six. And they'd go around and around. And it would be a fire or shots fired, um, you know, or, or an accident. And so my job was to pay attention to the police and the ambulance and the fire scanners and to dispatch a crew. Um, if something newsworthy happened. So it was a great learning um, time. <laughs> also, I think I mentioned to you that I dug out some old journals from my um, college and early adult years. And I was on a volleyball league. I have no recollection of this. <laughs> so much of my young um, early adulthood, I have, I just have no memories of. I mean, I don't know if it's because I was drinking so much or, or what, but um but so that was great. And then I got, I was, I was, I moved out, um, was living with, with a friend and, you know, again, not behaving great still here because I think, you know, the chances we took, the chances I took, um, you know, it's, it's those things where, where it would break my heart if I ever knew my own child behaved in that way or, you know, drank that much and, um, and just was so lost, felt so lost that she didn't know what else to do. Right. 
So when did, when did you first discover, besides in college, when was the next time you said well, that, you know, I, I think I've got a problem? <laughs> so here's the thing with addiction and alcoholism. It's, it's like you're always denying what it is because you can't imagine life any other way. Um, you know, I would go through the things of, oh, I'm going to be healthy. I'm not going to drink for a couple of weeks or um, whatever. And then yeah, uh, my first on-air job was in a uh, real, real beautiful central Minnesota um, um, touristy town called Alexandria. And I met my now husband there. Um, and of course, how did, how did you guys meet? Well, I was really drunk at a bar. Um, and, you know, he was really cute, um, gave him my number, of course. Um, and, and he wound up calling me and I, you know, I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. Like, okay, he's going to realize who I am. He's going to not want anything to do with me. He's, um, you know, and, and he stuck with me and then I got a job. But of course I did. I mean, I, I did everything in my power to screw that up. Even when we were engaged, I got drunk. I threw the engagement ring across a restaurant floor. I'd get jealous. And then, you know, then I would be out and I would flirt, you know, I, it was hypocritical. I was manipulative. I was, um, I was just all the things my, my sober self would, would find absolutely cringeworthy. And it's really hard. Cause you're like, okay, that's someone else. And, and here's me, but really there's, there's only one of us. And right. it's really hard to come to terms with we're one person, but when, when I'm in that addictive alcoholic behavior, I behave very differently. Um, and you know, your judgment really goes out the window, but, um, we moved, we moved to Albany, Georgia, um, <laughs> sight unseen. Here's another little thing when you're, um, when you're drinking or you're, you're struggling with certain issues, um, sometimes you think I'll just change my surroundings. We call it geographical changes. You know, if I just move here, everything will be different. But the problem is everywhere I go, there I am. And um, so we went to Albany, Georgia. It was this awful TV station. Um, there were no live capabilities, which was supposed to be, you know, you started a small TV station, you move up, you move up. And this was like a step down from the small TV station I was at in Minnesota. But, um, you know, we found, we found our groove. We had a little, um, we found our friends there. We found our bar there. And early on, he drank as much as I did, you know, um, but then we would get to points where he, we got married and then he would say, you know, I just don't understand why you're having a beer on a Saturday. You know, I didn't like football, but by golly, I would watch football because it was, you know, an opportunity to drink yeah, because it's, that's it's accepted kind of, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's kind of what our culture says. Hey, it's, you know, who cares that I don't know a dang thing about <laughs> football? You know, okay. Yeah, I still don't know much about football, even living here. I do know Auburn and Alabama. I haven't picked a side, you know. Um, I hope they all do well. Um, but um, so we were, we, there was, there was um, one night we were back home and I 
once again behaved poorly and um and he was mad at me and he had every reason to be i gave him lots of reasons over the years and i don't think he would have given me an ultimatum if i didn't stop drinking i think he just would have been gone right um so i'm very grateful that he's still with me um and I told him I'm going to go to treatment. It was, it was in 2000. And so I did an assessment and they said, yeah, well, you should probably, you need to do the residential program. And, and I'm thinking, you want me to stay here overnight? Um, and I mean, that never occurred to me. I didn't really know what treatment was. Um, and so I left and passed a cluster of people smoking on the way out, drove home and keep in mind, my husband didn't really understand alcoholism. He didn't grow up with anyone close to him having uh, an addiction to any drugs or alcohol, um, you know, and my drug of choice was alcohol. Um, and so I got home and he said, how was it? And I said, you're right. I'm not an alcoholic. And he's like, okay, great. You just need to stop drinking when I tell you to stop drinking. Of course. You know, why didn't we think of that sooner? Yeah. Um, and you can only imagine how that went. And I got to a point um, where I quit trying. You know, I, I, I just couldn't control it. I spent many times in my adult life drinking I was always a walker, even before I'd see you in South Huntsville when you were first starting out with the with the adventure boot camp over there at Weatherly. And I'd um, I was probably um, I was probably hung over some of those nights or some of those mornings when you guys were working out and I was walking. Um, but I was also a creature of habit. So no matter how bad I felt, I was out there in the morning. And I'd pray and I'd say, dear God, please help me not to drink tonight. Please help me not to drink. By four o'clock, I'd push that aside and I'd be like, okay, what grocery store will I stop at? What will I get? Because you have to go to different grocery stores because you don't want anyone to think that you have a problem because you're in there buying wine every night. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, and when I got to the point where you had asked um, in the email, you know, what was your bottom? There was no big anything um, that would make for a, a great TV show or a great plot twist. I was just sitting in my house doing the same thing I did every night, which was drinking wine. And um, my husband came in and he was visibly irritated. And I said, what's wrong? I knew exactly what was wrong. And he said, I'm just so sick and tired of you getting drunk every night for no reason. And I said, I am too. And that was that moment of clarity that you hear people talking about. And my, my words were slurred, but my mind was clear. And um, I don't know if it was that night um, or when, but I went to, remember when we had phone books? Oh yeah. I went to one of those and I, um, I looked under addiction treatment and I found a place called Cumberland Heights in Nashville. And I stopped at the TV station and told my boss and, and the GM, the news director and the general manager. And I figured I'm outing myself to these two because then I can't chicken out. Yeah. Cause you know, Cumberland Heights was what almost two hours away a lot. You can change your mind 
Um, (laughs) That's why it's so sad when, when we have such limited opportunities for treatment in Alabama. And, um, you know, somebody, somebody may not have the means and, um, and there's not a state funded bed or anything available for two months, that window of willingness will rarely stay open for that long. Um, And so I went up there and, and I was serious from the beginning. Um, You know, I, I guess I can be obsessive about a lot of things and I think my obsession served me well with, with my recovery because I wasn't going back to the emptiness and the loneliness and, you know, I would say hopelessness, but I always had a little bit of hope. I never, never lost hope completely. Um, but I did get to that point that night where I was like sick and tired of being sick and tired, exactly like you hear people say. Um, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't live another day with alcohol, but it has been my crutch and my best friend. It has helped me cope. It is, it has, um, you know, I really think I was numbing a lot of the pain inside and, um, and not dealing with a lot of things. Um, so, so how do you, how do you walk away from it? It's, I can't live with this anymore, but how dear God, can I live without it? Well, that's what you learn when you become when you begin a treatment program or a recovery program. You learn how to live life on life's terms, and you learn how to cope and manage. and um, And it's like you want to change everyone else. I spent my whole life trying to control everything around me, and I'm like, wait a minute, I have to start right here. You know, um, you know, I still mess up. I still. I still have uh, my times of behaving badly. Um, I still make mistakes, um, but I don't have to drink over them. And wow. so I, I don't get so far away that, um, that I can't get back on my journey if, if I falter a little bit, as long as I don't pick up a drink. Wow. It's such an amazing story. I, I know it's probably not the easiest thing in the world to share all your mistakes and all your failures, all the things you went through, but there's so many people that go through the same thing and that they there keep are. it inside. And, and, and trust me, I didn't share all the mistakes because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there are some doozies, but, um, but yeah, I do think I have been led to share. Um, you know, I was at Hudson Alpha after I was at the Y, I was there for a very long time, loved it there, some great people, um, great purpose. But I really think God walked me this way and put me here in a place that helps people um, who do struggle with mental illness, people who struggle with substance use disorders, which is now what we clinically refer to as addiction. Um, and, And it took me being led in this direction that gave me, I guess, that allowed me to seize the opportunity to share my own story. And, um, you know, there was a time several years ago where I wrote a blog and I talked about my anxiety and my um, ADHD. And I started writing about my alcoholism and I thought, oh, I can't do that. People, people can accept 
me for these things. Oh, but I can't share that. Right. And, you know, looking back, I wish I had said something sooner because there may have been people who that could have helped back then, but I can only hope that there are people who, who hearing this now can be helped now realizing, Hey, I'm not alone. And I learned that early on that no matter what, you are never alone. If it's not another person, I have, I have, you know, I've gone into meetings and brought Jesus in with me and, and, you know, figuratively held his hand. Um, so, so just, just so my, my mom used to love, uh, the whole, she was so excited when I told her I was in recovery and I had gone to treatment. Um, even though she had never said anything, she knew. You're right. So, well, you're definitely helping somebody right now. So thank you for that. And I appreciate what you're doing. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate the platform. Um, yeah. And I appreciate um, your podcast and your book. And I love, I think I told you this before we went on, but relentless positivity. Isn't that just something we should all embrace every day? Um, yeah. Yeah, I love I'm, that. I'm, I'm working on it. So it's, it's something I'm working on too. But let's uh, let's talk about modern day and uh, tell us about Wellstone, where you are now, which you speaking of making a difference. You guys are changing the game with that. Oh my gosh. So so I have known of Wellstone for a long time just because that's where um, my heart's always been in this area. I, you know, I mentioned my dad and then of course there's me. Um, and my mom was a psychiatric nurse and, you know, she had her own things. Um, she was on um, antidepressants for a long, long time. Um, so when I heard that they were building a crisis center, you know, in this day and age, think of all the situations we've heard of either on national news or in our own neighborhoods and communities. And I'm like, it is about time. And, um, and I talked to Jeremy Blair, who, who's the CEO and really, um, at our ribbon cutting for the new crisis care center, which is known as Wellstone Emergency Services or WES, W-E-S, um, the, the Department of Mental Health said, um, Jeremy began the conversations about these crisis care centers before they even did. Wow. Um, so he's got amazing vision. I called him, um, we chatted. I'm like, tell me about this. This is amazing. And um, so he told me that they were building um, they got one of the first three bids. There was, um, they're building one. They were starting one in um, Mobile, Montgomery, and then Huntsville. And Huntsville was the only one that was building it from scratch, from the ground up, because uh, you know where we are. We're on um, just off the parkway between Martin and Airport Road. Um, and this is a place where people can go. Um, a lot of police and hosp uh, police drop-offs, hospital referrals. Uh, we have a temporary location that's been operating in a limited capacity since May of 2021, 10 beds that stay full because there is such a need. Right. People who might have a psychotic break, um, family doesn't know what to do. They're downtown, something's going on. It, they're making people nervous. They call the police or maybe it's a public intoxication, call the police. Whereas before they take them to, uh, to jail, arrest them or take them to the emergency room. Um, you know, both are fine places, but unless there is 
um, true criminal activity and behavior and intent or a true physical emergency, that's not really where they belong. Right. You know, and the idea for the ER is it let's let's get them fixed up and out because, you know, we've got people waiting and we've got beds that we need to clear up. So so they can come to Wellstone's emergency services, Wes, and they can they can come in. About 33% of our clients at the temporary facility have been homeless, but we've also had engineers, blue cla- blue collar, white collar, all the collars, um, because as we know, it doesn't discriminate right. mental illness or substance use disorders. Um, and Paula Steele is our director, and Paula's commitment and and mission is to make sure that everyone who comes in there feels loved because so many of those folks have gone many, many years without knowing what that feels like or, or they've forgotten what it feels like. So the idea is to come in there, um, be welcomed in, you know, (laughs) when's the last time they were felt welcome in jail, you know, come on in. We're so happy you're here. Um, and, and they come in, they can get stabilized, they can stay in the observation unit for up to 24 hours, or for longer term, which is up to two weeks, and they can stay there, they can be stabilized, they can get a true diagnosis, um, they can be put on a treatment plan, um, they get social workers, so caseworkers, so they once they're released and their treatment plan is is created, they've got someone checking in on them and making sure that they can access um, the care required for those care plans and those recovery journeys. They're not alone. Um, they always have someone. Most of the time, we have 70 programs at Wellstone, which is pretty hard to believe. I thought it was traditional psychiatry and therapy, but you would your mind, that's, that's a whole other series talking about all the programs Wellstone has. We um, serve about 12,000 individuals, children, adolescents, adults, um, and provide about $3.2 million in uncompensated care every year, public nonprofit. Um, But when they come in, they're able to get the mental health care they need with the dignity they deserve. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of like what took us as a society, as a culture for so, what took us so long? It's so important. It's, it's, you know, people, if people don't, if people are ashamed that they have mental illness or an addiction, they're not going to get any better. And so we have to have those honest and open conversations and it is getting better, but it's, we're not where we need, we're not anywhere near where we need to be, where, where somebody feels comfortable saying, Hey, I've, there are people out there for sure. I have no doubt. I've talked to some of them who just can't imagine other people knowing what they're dealing with. Right. And, um, I heard, I heard once, um, somebody say, uh, mental illness and addiction don't belong in secrecy and silence. And I love that. And that was actually the last um, really, that was what convinced me, that quote convinced me to share my story. And that was about a year ago. Wow. Oh, man. You just keep sharing that story because I'm, I'm sure it's helping. So I know people are like, man, Wellstone is awesome. How can they support Wellstone? What can they do to help out? Oh, gosh, they can call me. We, um, 
you know, we are, we are, um, HIPAA compliant, so we are limited with uh, with what types of volunteerism we can have. But you know, my job here is to raise some critical funding to help pay for that building. Uh, it was a ten million dollar project. We have gotten uh, we got five million dollars from the state, Madison City, Madison County, and the city of Huntsville, which was amazing. And we're still trying to close that gap. I've, we've we've raised um, with some amazing volunteers about five hundred and fifty thousand wow. um, dollars. Any any amount, whether it's ten dollars, you know, or or a hundred dollars, or if somebody can do a hundred thousand over five years, you know, it takes every gift. And even if you do a smaller gift, you're saying, I'm a part of this. I believe in this. I believe in the work that Wellstone's doing. And, you know, I, I might have a friend, I might have a family member. I might not have anyone that I know of right. who is dealing with mental illness or addiction, but one in four of us has some type of mental illness that we experience. So, so look around you. You might not think you have any experience, um, but you probably do. And, and, um, and hopefully the people in, in your life, if there are people there in your life who need mental health care or addiction treatment, hopefully they can, um, they can find it, but you can look on our wells on our website, wellstone.com. Um, every donation is tax deductible. We have something called the be the rock campaign, and that is a capital campaign. And it is, um, uh, we invite people to help us build a strong foundation of compassion, connection, and community for those in mental health and substance use crisis. And, um, and, and I love this community. We have an amazing, amazing community. And I'm so grateful that after all these years, I'm, I didn't stick to my plan of living here for two years and then getting out. We're, we're still here. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome place. That's for sure. So before we wrap this up, if, if there's probably someone listening right now, they're struggling, maybe they were in your position. What, what would you say to that person right now? Okay. Well, for one, we, we've started a couple of things. One, um, remember you're not alone. Um, there is help available. You know, the phone may seem like it weighs 500 pounds, but it doesn't. Um, and I will say that um, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. Um, and also, if someone is feeling hopeless, feeling like they can't go on, um, there's a new crisis and suicide hotline, 988. Um, Wellstone actually fields those calls with crisis trained counselors for North Alabama. One phone call. If you, if you are considering doing something drastic, if you have suicidal ideation, if there is anything going on with you where you are hurting so severely, call 988. Find someone to talk to. If you don't think you have anyone else to talk to or anywhere else to turn, dial those three numbers, 988, and don't forget them because this, this is a local, a local community health center and we can connect you. If it's not to a program here, we can connect you to other resources within Madison County. There are some amazing service and nonprofit organizations in this town. And the best part of it is we can all work together.
You'd be amazed how many people truly care if you will reach out. You, you got to start that process. So yeah, Karen, well, and I appreciate you because clearly you care. You've been doing us some some great work within your career and and outside of it. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Like I said, I know it's not easy, but I know it's helping somebody. So please, please keep sharing that. And if you guys are listening right now, please share this message and also share Wellstone, share what they do, share that 988, share these resource people, let these get them out there. And it's just where it's this commonplace that we help each other, right? Don't keep it, don't keep it private. Don't keep it in shame spiral and all that good stuff that, that has been going on for years. We got to bring it out in the light and you're doing that. So thank you for caring. Thank you. And if somebody does want to reach out to me personally, they can always email me. It's Karen.Peterson, all E's, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N at wellstone.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Karen. And thank you guys for listening. Please share this and let's get the word out and let's keep spreading the positivity, spreading the message about, hey, let's get people sober and help them out and help them out with their mental health. Karen, you're awesome. Thank you for being here. You are too. Thank you. Wow, what a great episode. You share that with somebody. I'm going to share with you some awesome sponsors. McWilliams Marketing. They can help your business grow. Regardless of the size of the project, you're going to get a solution that is specifically created for you and your business. No cookie cutter, one size fits approach here. So Amy and her band of fearless marketers can help you with all that stuff that you think you can do, but you're not really that good at it. You don't have time for it. They can do that. They're the experts. It's what they do. Web design, online conversion optimization, SEO, uh, graphic design, marketing, page management, all that stuff. Go let them do that. Don't handle that yourself. Go check them out at mcwilliamsmarketing.com. See what all they can do. They're amazing people. Teak Patnick with Patnick Realty. He really does it all in the real estate world. General real estate sales, acquisitions, property management, investments, all that good stuff. You're not just a transaction with Teak. He really wants to build a relationship for life with you. He has built his whole business on prayer, hard work ethic, honesty, and results. You can trust Patnick Realty with all your real estate needs. Hey, I trust my brother from another mother, Teak, and you should too. Give him a call, 256-694-0117, or email him at teak at patnickco.com. Hey, is your child struggling with math? Are you frustrated trying to help them? Then you need Mathnasium of Madison. They will meet your child where they are and help them get where they need to go. And they will do this in a positive and uplifting environment. You'll see measurable changes in attitude, confidence, and school progress. And go to their website, mathnasium.com slash madisonal, and sign up for the assessment. It is a risk-free and cost-free process that will tell you exactly where your child stands academically. Check them out again, mathnasium.com, madisonal. You know what you need in your life? Some apparel app. It's where I get all my t-shirts and the Hope Dealer stickers there and all my stuff over there. But you can brand just about anything you want there. Whether you have an idea of what you want or you have no idea where to start, they can help you. Go check out their website, apparelab.inc, I-N-K. You, or you can email them at theapparelab at gmail.com. Use a promo code RELENTLESS. Save yourself some money. Get some great products. Hey, these are awesome businesses. Go support them. They're out supporting positivity, and they will do you right. Have an awesome day.